Today we are going to take a look, albeit a cursory one, at the book of Revelation, a fascinating book, a book that is filled with hope and encouragement. It really is. Now, you might start turning to Revelation, the first chapter, because that's where we're going to be in just a few minutes. To begin with, we're not going to talk about the beast and false prophet. We're not going to discuss the seals, the trumpet plagues, or any of the trumpets for that matter. We're not going to even discuss very much about the new heavens and the new earth. Hopefully, we will give at least a basic background view of the book of Revelation, its place in the canon, its importance, what it signifies, and the incredible messages that Christ gave to the seven churches. And believe me, when you read them, you will see what hope and encouragement they were. To start with, let's read the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 1. The emanation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that are ordained to come to pass shortly. And he made it known, having sent it by his angel to his servant John. Well, we have a message. Comes from the Father to Christ to John, and then to us. Now, who was this John? Well, Bible doesn't say. However, bishops, Benito, and Irenaeus say it was John the Apostle. And let's consider this. What disciple of Jesus named John can we think of that Jesus would entrust to finishing off his written word. I think we're pretty safe in saying that the Apostle John, the beloved Apostle, is this John. Look now in what it says in verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace be to you from him who is, who was, and is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne. Now, this would seem to be more the Father than it would be Christ. Let's go to the next verse, where we read, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now, let's drop down just a few verses, and we see in verse 8, this is Jesus speaking. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. So, we see that both Father and Son have the same titles. In fact, this is the same expression used in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. Now, we don't need to turn there for time's sake. Remember, God was sending Moses to Pharaoh. They were back in Egypt. And Moses says, Lord, when I go before Pharaoh and the Israelites, what name am I going to use? We'll want to know who you are. What do I do? What do I say? 
And God said, you tell him, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was what I was. I am what I am. I will be what I will be. I am the I am, the ever-living one, or the being one. That's the same language here in Revelation, the being one. Now look in verse 9, and we get some background to this book. Okay. John, who am also your brother and partaker in tribulation. There was tribulation going on. This was probably during the days of Domitian. Who was ruling over Rome in the 90s AD. And he was not a very nice ruler. In fact, his own people didn't like him. He was, he was vicious. At any rate, he says he's our brother and joint partaker in tribulation. Times were tough. And in the kingdom and endurance of Jesus Christ. Okay, he was on the island that is called Patmos. Now, Patmos was an island just off the coast of Asia Minor. If you've ever seen a map of Asia Minor, look for Ephesus. And then go south and west of Ephesus a little bit, and you will come across the island of Patmos. Patmos was more like a penal colony. Anytime the Romans wanted to get rid of someone they didn't like, wanted to put him out of commission, not to necessarily assassinate him or kill him, because that may make a murder out of him. And Rome tried, if they could, to avoid that. So they put him on the island of Patmos. Why? Well, look what John says. Verse 9, the last two, last two lines. Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. He was preaching Christ. He was preaching the kingdom of God. Romans didn't like that. So they just exiled him. And he's told to write what he sees in the book, the Revelation. This book is the seventh and final book of the New Testament. In fact, it's the seventh and final book of the whole Bible. We had the prophets. Well, you had actually, you had the, you had the law, the prophets, and the writings. And then you had... Uh, you, you had the Gospels, you had Acts, the Epistles, and finally Revelation. And we're going to see that God is going to sign off on the book of Revelation the way he signed off on Creation Week, primarily through the number seven. Oh, the book of Revelation is honeycombed with sevens. So let's take a look. Let's see, we will start in Revelation 1, go to verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, and from the seven spirits, seven churches, seven spirits. Next, after that, we'll go to chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3 and verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things. Was he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Again, seven. Now, the fact that there are seven stars, seven churches, seven angels, of course, that by itself doesn't necessarily mean that much, but you find them used in the book of Revelation more often than any other book. In fact, 
the sevenths, the word seventh, the seventh this, the seventh that. It is used 54 times in the book of Revelation alone. This book is honeycombed with sevens. No way around it. Then after that, look at Revelation 15 and verse 1. Revelation 15 and verse 1. I saw another sign in heaven, great and awesome, seven angels having the seven last plagues. Seven again. Now let's look at Revelation chapter 5. You know what we're going to find. Revelation 5. And in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, yes, written the runile back, which were sealed with seven seals. Again, the number seven. And if that's not enough, let's go to Revelation chapter 8, verses 2 and 6. Revelation 8, chapter 2. Then I saw the seven angels who stood before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Now drop down to verse 6, and what do we see? Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound their trumpets. Again, sevens. Now that's not enough. Look at the blessings. Blessed is he. Blessed are these. Blessed are those. Let's look at them. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. That's one. Now Revelation 14, 13. And I hear the voice from heaven saying, Blessed are the dead. Blessed. That's true. Now, Revelation 16 and verse 15. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is the one who is watching. Again, we have blessed. Now, Revelation 19, in this case, verse 9. And he said to me, Wait, blessed are those. Blessed again. How about Revelation 20 and verse 6? Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. That's five blessings. Now, Revelation 22, the last book, and verse 7. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is the one. Six. And look in Revelation 22 and verse 14. Blessed are those who keep his commandments. Seven. God, what God is doing is signing off on his written word, just the way he did back in Genesis 2. Let's turn there. Now, keep your place in Revelation, because believe me, we are coming right back. We're not going anywhere. But turn to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Look at the next two verses. And by the beginning of the seventh day, God finished his work, which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day, sanctified it, because on it he rested, or ceased from all his work. In Hebrew... 
this account is comprised of three sentences, seven words each, three times seven, seven finality, total finality, and seven perfection, complete perfection. God is signing off on the creation week. His job was done perfectly. And you can look in verse 31 of chapter 1. God saw everything we made. And indeed, it was exceedingly good. Not just good, as you find in Genesis 1 elsewhere. But tov very good. The superlative. Well, back here in Revelation, what we have is God signing off on Revelation. With his sevens, he is saying, my written word is complete. From Genesis to Revelation, no more. It is the grand finale. Now, God would later on, of course, I'm sure, reveal to his servants certain things, certain other teachings, and so forth. Not in terms of a book, though. Not in terms of a document or a letter. No. His written word, or as Peter would talk about it, the sure word of prophecy, that is his word of preaching, the book of Revelation completed it in toto. And so we have this magnificent book. But now let's look at some things mentioned in those left in the letters to the seven churches. And we will find some very interesting things. Revelation 1 and verse 16. And in his right hand, we had seven stars and a sharp two-edged sword. We're going to look at the right hand, and then we'll look at the two-edged sword. What's he talking about here? He also talks about the right hand in Revelation 5. And verse 1. And in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, why the right hand? Doesn't God have a left hand? Well, he certainly does. And I'm sure he could pack a wallop with that left hand. But you never read about that. Because he, in, he, in Hebrew, he break thought. The consciousness is the right hand is the hand of power. When God talks about by his hand, he saves. He's talking about his right hand, and the people there would know it. When he holds things and does things with his right hand, it is absolute. And God will do what he will do, and he will finish it, because it is in his right hand, the hand of power. Now, in that hand of power, we read of a two-edged sword. Let's go back to chapter 1 and verse 16. And in his right hand, he had seven stars, and he had a sharp two-edged sword that went out of his mouth. Yeah, if you've ever seen pictures as I have and paintings, you'll see what appears to be a person that they call Christ out of his mouth comes a sword. No, that's not what it's referring to. We're not talking about a literal sword. What are we talking about? The Apostle Paul explained that. Let's look at Hebrews. Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. 
Pierce Eaglington had divided asunder of both soul and spirit, and of both the joints and the marrow, and is able to discern the thought and intents of the heart. This is the two-edged sword. It's his word that comes out of his mouth, and he speaks with power. And what he says, he will do. And what he says he will not do, he will not do. But that is the powerful two-edged sword. It's really the word that proceeds forth from him. Now, these people, many of these individuals in these seven churches knew that because a lot of them were Jews. You see, Antiochus III, the father of the infamous Antiochus IV, you know, Antiochus Epiphanes, who went into the temple in those days and that offered swine on the altar. Antiochus III was a decent ruler, and he favored the Jews and encouraged many of them to migrate and settle in the seven cities that we read about in Revelation. You see, these seven cities were not duckbirds. They were not just ordinary cities. All of them, whether it's Ephesus, whether it's Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, these were powerful cities and known for certain things. Many of them were wealthy cities. And they were the seat of Roman government in that area. When you read the Bible, you read Revelation, you might not get that. But when you check the background and the history of those cities, you realize they were important cities. Well, next, we're going to look at the White Stone. Revelation 2, verse 17. The unborn ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And dropping down a few lines, and on the Spirit said, I will give the right to eat of the living man, and I will give him a white stone. Now, what was this white stone? In those days, we had a athletic contest. And the winners of each event was given a white stone. Now, that stone served as a pass to a banquet given in honor of the victors. And if you didn't have that white stone, you didn't get in. That's all there was to it. Well, we are going to be given a white stone. Right? And on that stone will be written a name. That will be our past. Think of a heavenly banquet. Think of the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's our ticket to get in. I remember many times I would attend seminars, and we would have lunch. And you were given a meal ticket, lunch ticket. And if you didn't have that lunch ticket, you had a problem getting in. So we're all going to have a white stone. And they knew that the white stone meant that they had entrance into this magnificent dinner. Well, we, that white stone, our new name, will be entrance for us to the marriage supper and to the glorious kingdom. That's what the white stone was. And we're going to get one. Just exactly how it's going to look like, what it's going to be exactly, but it's going to serve the same purpose. Now, in addition to that, we're going to look at, oh yes, the crown of life and the morning star. 
Now, this is absolutely breathtaking. Let us read about the morning star in Revelation 2 and verse 28. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 28. Now, he's talking here about the particular church. He's talking here about Pergamos. And then he's down to Thyatira. And in verse 28, he said, And I will give him overcoming who overcomes the morning star. Now, remember, it doesn't matter what church we're talking to, because we find it seven times. Let he who read, let him who hears, listen to what the the message is to the seven churches. And you have to overcome, verse 26, to the one who overcomes and keeps my works to the end. Shades of Matthew 24, 13, to him who overcomes or endures to the end, the same will be saved. For he is going to be given the morning star. Who and what in this morning star? That's Jesus Christ. He is the morning star. Turn to Revelation 22, the last chapter in this book. In verse 16, I, Jesus, sent my angel to testify these things to you in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Well, what does that mean? He is giving of himself to us. He is sharing all his glory with us. We are going to be as he is. We are going to shine. Look at what Daniel says. Daniel 12, talking about a resurrection. Verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame, everlasting contempt. And many who are wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, will return many to righteousness, shall shine as the stars forever and ever. That's us. Those of us who endure till the end, who overcome, he is going to have us on his throne. Let us look in Revelation 3 and verse 21. To the one who overcomes, will I give authority to sit with me in my throne, as I also overcame and sat down in my father's throne. We are going to sit, as it were, on the throne of Christ. We are going to be equal with him. Now, not an authority. The father will always be the grand patriarch of the clan. Christ will always be there, whether at the side, slightly underneath. It, it's hard to say, because after all, they both call themselves the first and the last. So it, it, it's, it's really hard to determine authority here. But I think the Father does have the edge there, a little bit anyway. So, but he is going to accept us on his throne. The only way that can happen is if we are his equals in terms of spirit composition. Look what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, in verse 17. 
Here we are. Now, if we are children, we are also heirs, truly heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Joint heirs. Now, I know what a joint heir is. Because I deal with that in my tax practice. And sometimes, you know, dad dies or grandma dies and, and, and the beneficiaries, they're joint heirs. That means you split it up equally because joint heirs. That's what joint means. And so this means whatever Christ inherits, we inherit. And we cannot be on the same plane as he is, or shall I say, we cannot. Be like that. We cannot have his glory if, unless we are joint heirs. A joint heir can only be joint among equals. And Jesus is saying, to him who does overcome, to him who endures unto the end, I will have him sit with me in my glory. And our faces will shine as the brightness of the sun and its full strength. That's the message. That, that God is giving to those people, saying, it doesn't matter how powerful Rome looks. It doesn't matter how strong the empire is. It doesn't matter what you go through. Look what he told the people at Smyrna. That we go to Revelation. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10. So he says, do not fear. Whatever happens to you, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. Do not worry about that. Look what he says. Final sentence. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. Now, in those Roman games, the winner, the victor, got a crown, a wreath. Not one of those magnificent crowns such as kings get, but the wreath, the laurel of the victor. And Christ is saying, that is nothing. Here today, gone tomorrow. If you are faithful to me, faithful unto death, if you endure to the end, if you stick with it and don't give up, I will give you a crown of life, the crown of eternal life, glorious eternal life. That is the message. To all those churches, hang in there. Don't be dismayed at what might happen to you. doesn't matter what persecution comes your way. Yes, it may be painful, and you may die, but I will resurrect you. I will give you the crown of life, and you will get to sit with me on my throne, governing the universe. What more could we ask for? This is the crowning book of all scripture. It is the finale, the end. And this is the promise that we have. What a magnificent book it is. Let us all be thankful that God did give us this revelation. We can read it, enjoy it, meditate on it, and let it become part of us.